it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Friday, June 17, 2022. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, Fox News contributor and townhall.com political editor actually went to the nationals game last night with the town hall team that was a lot of fun even got home just in time to watch my yankees walk off against the tampa bay rays but here i digress welcome into the program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m eastern time also around the clock on demand for free on our podcast guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We, of course, recommend listening live if you can between those three hours. It's my favorite three hours of the day. One of the ways to listen live is through our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. And we have a very busy show ahead. Jennifer Griffin with the latest out of Ukraine coming up later this hour. In the next hour, Janice Dean on this crazy heat wave and travel disruptions and more. She's up in our next hour, as is former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. We'll pick his brain on a number of political subjects, maybe a few lighter topics as well. And in our final hour, Larry Kudlow, who will be fresh off the air from his Fox business show, will be talking about inflation, gas prices, and the Biden administration, all their excuses that are piling up with Larry, who, of course, was a top economic advisor to President Trump. That's coming up in our third and final hour just after 5 o'clock p.m., Eastern Time. As we come on the air today, I'd like to follow up on a topic that we touched on a bit yesterday. I have a few more things to say because there are updates. We were telling you about this rash of violence, political violence, domestic terrorism, from a group calling itself Jane's Revenge, which seems to be a loosely affiliated network of hardcore left-wing abortion zealots who are firebombing and otherwise threatening these crisis pregnancy clinics that offer women alternatives to abortion, like the resources and counseling necessary to actually have their children and not abort their pregnancies. These people are so pro-abortion that they are trying to disrupt those organizations from doing their work and terrorize them. And there have been now dozens of incidents of vandalism, arson, and firebombing. And we read to you that chilling letter yesterday where they're promising more, a lot more, and to escalate their tactics and their violence. I just saw on Twitter that they're putting up posters around Washington, D.C. Here's what the poster says. D.C. call to action, night of rage. The night SCOTUS overturns Roe versus Wade, because everyone is just assuming it's a fait accompli because of the leak at the Supreme Court, where we still don't really have, at least publicly, answers on that. This flyer plastered around D.C., which appears to show someone running or about to throw something. It says, hit the streets. 
You said you'd riot to our oppressors. If abortions aren't safe, you're not either. And then it's signed Jane's Revenge. So these people are clearly feeling empowered, emboldened, brazen, untouchable. The FBI has launched investigations into all of this, as of course they should. This is domestic terrorism. It's outrageous and unacceptable, even if you are a very pro-choice person. These are groups counseling people to choose not abortion. And they're having their headquarters threatened and firebombed, and maybe worse, based on these new claims and the letter that was sent out. Every American, regardless of where you stand on the issue of abortion, should be able to condemn this. You would think, just like pro-lifers are demanded to do any time a radical on the anti-abortion side of things does something violent, sends a bomb to a clinic, sets a fire, personally threatens someone, violently threatens someone, right? Those instances are big news. People are asked to denounce. And, of course, if you are pro-life, truly, you don't believe in violence. And so it's easy to condemn acts of violence or threats of violence. It has no place in our process, no place in our system. And yet, we played you the very end snippet of this yesterday, Speaker Pelosi was asked about this by a reporter, which, again, like kudos to whoever finally asked a question. Republicans, if there's anything bad that could potentially hurt the party, reporters are just buzzing like busy little bees to go track down every Republican they can find to ask them tough questions and put them in a spot where it could be uncomfortable. And will you denounce and, and that whole form of journalism? Democrats very rarely encounter that sort of thing because journalists tend to be fellow Democrats. This is how it works. They are biased. They work on the same team far too often. We all understand that to be the case. But someone actually asked Pelosi about this spree of violent attacks and threats. And just listen, in Cut 27, you'll hear the question. And then Pelosi gives a lengthy answer in which she does not even attempt a throwaway line to denounce violence at all. Listen. Actually, as far as the abortion case is concerned, yeah. there have been a number of attacks on, uh, on, on churches, on uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Republicans are going after Democrats for not saying anything, and they're saying that that's your rhetoric is contributing to these attacks on these crisis pregnancy Well, let me just say this. A woman has a right to choose, to live up to her responsibility. It's up to her, her doctor, her family, her husband, her, her significant other, and her God. Uh, th- this talk of politicizing all of this, I think, is something uniquely American and not right. Other countries, Ireland, Italy, Mexico, have had legislative uh, initiatives uh, to expand a woman's right Uh, to choose very Catholic countries. I'm a very Catholic person, and I believe in every woman's right to make her own decisions. Any other questions on another subject? Because I'm not going to be talking about that anymore. 
I'm not going to be talking about that anymore. Any other questions? I'm a very Catholic person. Just briefly on that point, she's citing, for example, the law in Ireland, which was recently loosened. It was made less restrictive on abortion. I would take Ireland's abortion laws over our global outlier, draconian, inhumane abortion laws in this country, which will change in all likelihood very soon because of the Supreme Court. But Ireland has much more restrictive abortion laws than, for example, the state of California does. Would Nancy Pelosi support the Irish abortion law becoming America's abortion law? She would not. She does not support a single limitation on any abortion ever for any reason. She wants taxpayers funding it up till the moment of birth for any reason whatsoever, all nine months, on demand, including for illegal immigrants. That is her position. That is nowhere near the Irish law that she cites as being like, see, that very Irish country does that thing and and that very Catholic Irish country does that thing, along with Mexico and what was the other one that she said? A handful. Italy. He said, I'm very Catholic, too. The total non sequitur, by the way. The question was about violence against churches and pro-life pregnancy centers. And she's going off very defensive about her Catholicism and citing some of these laws in other countries that she would reject because they are too anti-abortion in her mind. They're a little too pro-life. A very odd thing for her to say. Not responsive to the question. What we heard there was a full-throated defense of abortion on demand from Nancy Pelosi. In response, again, to a question about domestic terrorism against pro-lifers. So think of it this way. Let's say there's a series of abortion clinic bombings. And people are being threatened, and whoever's responsible are putting out missives saying it's going to get worse. People are going to be in more danger. And reporters finally get around. I mean, it would be like attack number one. This would be a national story. So they they ask a Republican leader, let's say it's McConnell. They ask McConnell, will you condemn this violence? You say that you're pro-life or, you know, anti-abortion. Do these people speak in your name? Do you have any response? Democrats are saying that your rhetoric on this issue is contributing to this culture and this climate of hate, and now there's violence and there's been firebombings. If Mitch McConnell then gave, what, a minute-and-a-half answer about the evils of abortion and did not even bother briefly to check the box even of saying, we do not condone violence, how would that be received? How would that answer be interpreted? I think we all understand exactly how it would be received and how it would be interpreted. Here's another one. Make it a little bit more personal for Nancy. Let's say there were some right-wing kooks that were firebombing her properties or at least threatening to firebomb her house. And I'm very critical of Speaker Pelosi on this show basically all of the time because I think that she is very bad. She's a malign influence in our politics. The Democrats are doing bad things that are hurting the country. 
That's my position. The Republicans aren't perfect. I criticize them when I feel like it's necessary, which is more often than I wish were the case. But be that as it may, if someone came to me in this imagined threat with Pelosi, because I know her, her house was vandalized, but someone was threatening to firebomb her house because of you name the issue. And someone said to me, well, guy, you criticize Pelosi. You're a critic of hers. Is your rhetoric contributing to these threats against Pelosi? If I then popped off in my answer to that challenge, to that question, by just railing against Nancy Pelosi and how awful she is and how terrible her leadership is and how dangerous her policies are, and that's it? Not even nodding at the idea of nonviolence and condemning political violence and domestic terrorism being carried out by one extreme or another, I think it might be fair for someone to hear that answer and say, it's almost like he's winking at it and endorsing it, being like, oh, well, what a shame. Wouldn't it be a shame if that actually did happen to her? If you won't bother to even lightly condemn something, given that it's happening, this is not a hypothetical. My Pelosi and the abortion hypothetical with McConnell, that is sort of a counterfactual scenario that I'm using, both of them, to illustrate the point. This, the attacks on churches and pro-life centers, that's not hypothetical, it's happening. When Pelosi refuses to say a single thing about it and instead uses her entire answer to defend abortion, and attack pro-lifers and be like, oh, it's, this is the only country in the world. It's uniquely American to politicize this stuff. Actually, what's uniquely American is how permissive our abortion laws are. One of only seven countries in the world that allow elective late-term abortions as sort of the national law. That's sadly a bad example of American exceptionalism for now. I think it's just gruesome. And inhumane. So she has it backwards. But her answer was entirely a defense of abortion. Not one word, even suggesting that she might have a problem with what Jane's revenge is doing. Is she Jane? I think it's a fair question. Does she actively support this terrorism? She went out of her way, it seemed, not to denounce it and then said, I won't answer any more questions. Is the Speaker of the House of the United States of America in favor of this terrorism? That is a conclusion that I think it is fair to draw from the soundbite that we just played for you. And if she were a Republican, given a similar answer, under similar circumstances, she would be hounded repeatedly until she clarified. Will she be? Will there ever be another question asked of her about this? Or did her saying, I'm not going to talk about this anymore is that just sort of like okay yes ma'am and the reporters all salute and move on to the next thing because it's an unhelpful conversation for them now i have a few more things to say about this the double standards on violence and threats and threats to democracy this time about january 6th and what the democrats are up to on another front it sort of ties right into this and i'll get to that as soon as we come back it is the guy benson show stay tuned The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on the show. Continuing this thread, and this really does bother me. Because I try to be intellectually honest and consistent on this show. Not perfect, but that's what we try to do. And to see just the hackery and hypocrisy of people who are so far up on their high horse. Who then just totally abandon and betray whatever they're saying in the moment for their own political gain. It drives me crazy. It makes me more cynical. And I don't know if I've seen anything as cynical as what the Democrats are doing in some of the races around the country right now. New York Times headline, Democrats risky bet, aid GOP extremists in the spring, hoping to beat them in the fall. So we've been treated to these January 6th hearings. And all the Democratic leadership is saying this is gravely important. And this was an existential threat to our country and to our democracy And this should not be a partisan issue. And shame on these Republicans for playing politics. And they're all lackeys for Trump and blah, blah, blah. Politics all the way down. Right? This is the lecturing and the finger wagging that we get. And I have not been as critical of the work of the committee as many other conservatives. Although I do have some problems with it. I try to be even-handed and tell you what I actually think. Oh, domestic terrorism. Insurrection. Political violence, outrageous, unacceptable. Then we hear nothing from the White House about the doxing of Supreme Court justices. We still haven't heard directly from Biden about the Kavanaugh assassination plot. Pelosi, we just played the audio in the last segment, going out of her way not to condemn terrorist acts against pro-life organizations. Would not do it. Then wouldn't answer any more questions. And then here we've got Democrats Meddling in Republican primaries in one of them out in California, there was a Republican congressman who voted to impeach Trump after January 6th. The Democrats all brave. How brave. So good. Good for you. Country over party. The Democrats are now using that impeachment vote against him in ads, trying to boost his election truth or opponent because they think that guy would be easier to beat in the fall. So, oh, you did the right thing, quote-unquote, in our minds? Great. Let's punish you for it, for our political gain. Cynical and disgusting, and I don't treat them seriously. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here with me on this Friday. Yesterday... We had Bill Malugin, our colleague, here on the program talking about the latest developments at the southern border and the border crisis, where it looks like the Biden administration is hell-bent on scapegoating those border agents. 
the so-called whippers, no matter what, doesn't matter what the facts are. President promised punishment, so punishment shall be derived somehow. We'll be following that here, believe me. Then also in the last month of May, we got the numbers in for border crossings and apprehensions, record-shattering numbers. Roughly 240,000 apprehensions at the southern border last month alone. Not including what Malugin is hearing, about 50,000 known gotaways from his sources down there. He's very well plugged in, Malugin is. So 240,000 arrests or encounters, plus 50,000-plus known gotaways. So you're up to almost 300,000. Add in the unknown gotaways, and you're probably right around 300,000 in one month. This after Biden said that they'd gotten control over the situation a year prior, in April of 21, when it was 172,000 was the number. Now we're closing in on 300,000 when you add all those elements together. And you still have top administration officials showing up on television, in interviews when they give them Capitol Hill hearings, saying, oh, well, uh, operational control, yep, we've got it. Don't you worry. Well, the incentives don't change. Well, they continue to blather on from the vice president on down about root causes in a handful of countries. When you've got 150-plus countries represented of people who have come to the southern border to come in that way. And part of the reason that we talk about this as often as we do is not just just the, the principle of it, the national sovereignty questions around it, which I think are sufficient. I say this as someone who is kind of, at least theoretically, certainly in the past, a squish, if you will. You might call me a squish on the immigration issue, open to DREAM Act solutions, pathways to legal status for a lot of the people who have been here. I've been open to that stuff. Not anymore. Certainly not now. All of that to me is frozen out of even consideration until the crisis is brought under control, which it is not. It is raging out of control and getting worse. But beyond the mere principle of it, that a country has the right to protect its sovereignty and its borders, in fact, a duty to do those things. There are also public safety and national security concerns as well. And I'll often see Border Patrol officials and other folks down at the border tweeting out lists of known criminals, murderers, sexual assailants, child abusers who are interdicted at the border. And detained. And those are the ones that are actually caught. It stands to reason that when you have tens of thousands of people in the known gotaway and the unknown gotaway category, that group will be disproportionately tilted in the direction of people who are more dangerous because they want to go out of their way not to be caught. We talk about this phenomenon a lot, but I feel like I have to explain it again. Many of the people encountered, quote unquote, and detained at the border, want to be encountered. They want to be caught, they want to be processed, and the hope is that they will be released into the country, bust or flown to a city of their choice. And that happens a lot. The Biden administration does it for them. 
We foot the bill for that. U.S. taxpayers do. Almost 100,000 in May alone were processed and released. People make the decision to get caught because it will benefit them. And in many cases, they don't show up for their court dates. That's how it works. That's what part of the open borders problem looks like. But if you don't want to get caught because you're not going to get released because you're a convicted felon or on a terrorist watch list, you are paying a lot more money to the Mexican drug cartels to smuggle you in surreptitiously. You don't want to get caught. You want to be one of the gotaways. That's the goal. And so the cartels charge you a lot more money for that. This is something that I learned on my border trip this past spring. That the cartels are making $100 million a week. $100 million a week on human trafficking alone at the border. And the higher risk person you are, the more they charge you. It's a very sophisticated process that they have. Which brings me to this additional piece of reporting from Malugin today. This is on the national security side. You've got the public safety side. People who have raped, murdered, assaulted, stolen, you name it. That's a public safety concern if they're coming back into the country. Violent people. Then you've got the terrorism side of it. The national security side. Again, this is a small number. I'm not trying to blow this out of proportion. But so far this fiscal year, since October alone, 50 people from the U.S. terrorist screening database, 50 of them, have been encountered and detained at the southern border. That's up from 16 last year and three the year before that. Do you see a pattern? It's part of the reason that we talk about this. There are multiple prongs to this problem. All right, with that being said, I want to shift gears a little bit and bring in our colleague Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News. Jennifer, it's great to have you. Happy Friday. Thank you so much, Guy. Let's talk about Ukraine. Uh, This is something that you report on quite a lot. I saw one of your tweets earlier sort of intriguing. The Kremlin announcing earlier that Vladimir Putin was supposed to be giving a, quote, extremely important speech today, but it's been delayed due to some sort of cyber attack. What do we know about this? Well, it's really interesting. It was actually the Kremlin itself that confirmed that unnamed hackers had uh, carried out a denial of service uh, operation and hacked basically a cyber attack that postponed President Putin's remarks at the prestigious economic conference that he was trying to host in St. Petersburg, Russia today. President Putin ended up giving that speech, and it was a fiery speech in which he talked about uh, continuing in Ukraine. He gave no sense that uh, he was willing to pull back or order his troops to stop the invasion, uh, which, of course, he doesn't call an invasion. He calls it a special military operation. He described it as the Donbass operation, which I thought was interesting because that is a uh, a, a new way of describing uh, the, the what the forces are doing there because, remember, when this started on February 24th, uh, the plan was basically to take the entire com- country, including Kiev. So that was notable. Uh, what was more notable, Guy, was that President Xi of China also addressed the economic conference virtually. And that is really significant and symbolic because we've been reporting today on the 
birthday phone call that President Putin uh, called President Xi on his 69th birthday this Wednesday. And it was what was said during that phone call that really got people's attention. Because remember, we were hearing from U.S. intelligence after the invasion and after President Xi and President Putin, Putin had uh, had been seen prior to the uh, opening of the Olympics, before the invasion of Ukraine, they were shaking hands. And and U.S. intelligence was trying to present in those initial weeks when there were so many atrocities uh, inside Ukraine that President Xi and China was very uncomfortable with the relationship with Mm -hmm. Putin and Russia. That all changed this week. They came out and they keep claiming that they're neutral, but in in fact they, they have given Putin pretty much a green light to do what he wants in Ukraine. Yeah, they're cooperating also, the Russians and the Chinese, with Tehran. I mean, there's a new axis forming in the world, and we're watching it in real time. On the Ukraine piece of it, we're seeing European leaders renewing calls for support for Ukraine. I know that there were some leaders on the ground, I believe, even today, supporting Zelensky there. I've seen some some reporting, Jennifer, about countries like, I believe, Latvia really punching above its weight and trying to help the Ukrainians. Other bigger countries with much bigger economies, maybe not doing as much. The United States has sent an enormous amount of money over there. The question is, is the assistance arriving in a timely manner? Because it does seem like the Russians have made some gains in the east with the Ukrainians outgunned in that area. What's that pipeline issue right now from all of this support rhetorically and financially to what it actually looks like on the ground to make a difference. At least to some Americans, there feels like a disconnect right now. Well, Guy, remember, the U.S. still is the largest donor of weapons and military aid to Ukraine. Billions and billions of dollars. You just heard President Biden authorize another billion dollars on on Wednesday from, you know, Congress has been very generous. It's one of the few bipartisan efforts and things that bipartisan congressional leaders agree on. And, you know, they've passed $40 billion of late for more aid to Ukraine. Uh, the weapons are getting to Poland and they're getting and then they are they are being taken into Ukraine. Um, the, it, inevitably, at this moment in the war, it was going to be a different war than uh, the javelins were, were very useful in terms of stopping the the long lines of tanks coming down to Kiev, and that's right. why the, the Ukrainians were able to push back there. But this, in the east, was always going to be an artillery war. And the kind of artillery, the long-range artillery, the really sophisticated artillery, that has been a bit slow in coming. And the U.S. this week hosted in Brussels, a 49 nations for its second donor conference for weaponry. And there were some very significant, you know, there are interesting countries stepping up, providing weapons to Ukraine. As you mentioned, the Baltics and Poland, Poland and, and the Baltics have been very motivated, probably. Well, they feel like they have uh, skin in the game. Exactly. Well, they they are next door to Russia and they believe they're next if if Putin is not stopped in Ukraine. So the real problem that that we're seeing and hearing about right now on the ground is that the logistics, the lines of getting some of this artillery. uh, First of all, this the HIMARS, the the high mobility, um, you know, artillery with the longer range and the real precision that takes, you know, a good 
uh, 10 days, if not longer, to train Ukrainians on. And, and the U.S. has tied itself in knots by not sending trainers into Ukraine. Obviously, they don't want to end up in a war with Russia. Uh, but the president has, it won't authorize any military personnel or uh, trainers to go into Ukraine. That's making a lot, lot longer process. Mm -hmm. There's the issue of training manuals. They have to be translated. All of it is just taking a lot longer than what the Ukrainians need, needed all of this six weeks, two months ago. It could have been prepositioned. It wasn't. And, and so, you know, there's a great deal of will. There are a lot of nations donating. You've never seen weapons move as fast as they do to get to the – but the question is, are they getting to the right units on the front lines? Right. Is it fast enough? And the, I'm afraid right now it is a real grinding stalemate in the east. Yeah, so that was my next question. If there is this stalemate, back and forth, heavy losses on both sides, then what? You're seeing some think pieces coming out saying, okay, well, you know, uh, we've saved Ukraine overall. This eastern chunk looks like it might get bitten off. I think that's premature, off. by the way. I think that's premature to say that uh, they've saved Ukraine. There are many people who assess that if Putin is allowed to take a foothold in the Donbass, he won't stop. He'll just then relaunch at a later stage to right, Kiev. He'll wait. There's nothing, there's nothing suggesting that Kiev is safe at this point. Yeah, I tend to agree. But the thinking some are espousing is let's come to some sort of an endgame. We can make this you know, somewhat palatable to everyone involved. The Russians get to claim something other than a total defeat, but the government in Kiev continues to stand, and we can then uh, help them redouble their security efforts moving forward. Uh, what do you make of that? Because I think a lot of Americans do question where would the end game be? What would that look like? Is that a fair conversation to be having yet? Is that too soon? What do you think? Well, I think it's not taking into account two factors, the Ukrainians and Moscow. Putin has a, has to make a decision that he's ready factors. to negotiate. <laughs> the Ukrainians, uh, 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 my husband's a journalist. He's over there right now, has been there for the last six weeks, and he interviewed the top negotiator for the Ukrainians, Mikhail Podolak. And at the end of the interview, he said, Mikhail Podolak didn't talk at all about negotiations. All he said was that they need more weapons, weapons, weapons. The Ukrainians aren't willing to stop fighting at this point. The Russians aren't willing to stop fighting at this point. So the West can debate this all they want, but they're not going to impose a solution on, on, on either of them. And in fact, President Biden has been clear that it is not for the U.S. or NATO or others to tell uh, President Zelensky what to do. So it's, I think uh, it's still you know, a long fight. You heard the U.S. ambassador uh, in Kiev say that, that this is going to take months, if not longer. Um, this is this is entering a new phase. Uh, there, the one thing that I, I think it's still very undetermined, the, the Ukrainians still have a lot of fight left in them. And in fact, Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, made a surprise visit to uh, Kiev today in which yes. he vowed to start training tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops um, and setting up that training, you know, just on the other side of the border from Ukraine. So that's a big effort by the, the British. The British have really taken the lead in a lot of ways on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, they've, they've pulled the rest of NATO along as well. 
the U.S. has the heft in terms of the deep pockets and and the large uh, the large weapon supplies, but the British are really leaning in. And President uh, President uh, sorry Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been very close to President Zelensky, and it's interesting to have heard that that promise today um, in downtown Kiev. Yeah, and good for Boris from my perspective. And Jennifer, I think you just hit on the key point. We can sit around in the United States or in the West or elsewhere playing essentially parlor games about end games and what this could look like and how a negotiated settlement could take shape if both sides of the conflict have no interest in that right now. It's purely academic. And so I think it's important to analyze things as reality exists on the ground right now. And speaking of on the ground, we do wish your husband safety and security over there, and we hope that he comes home uh, very soon. And, Jennifer, we always appreciate your time here on the show as well. Thank you for your insights. Thank you so much, Guy. Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News, my guest on The Guy Benson Show, which is back after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We continue on The Guy Benson Show. I love this. I saw this clip of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, with whom I disagree almost all the time. But she was giving some remarks at a Constitutional Society event, and she talked about her colleague, Clarence Thomas. Listen to Cut 31. Justice Thomas is the one justice in the building that literally knows every employee's name, that they, every one of them. And not only does he know their names, he remembers their families' names and histories. He's the first one who will go up to someone when you're walking with him and say, is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college? He's the first one that when my stepfather died, sent me flowers in Florida. He is a man who keeps, cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there, but about people. Shades of the affection shared by Scalia and RBG. These relationships and friendships across the ideological spectrum. I'm glad that she offered that tribute, especially in this moment, in this climate. That was lovely and needed. And I hope and I trust it goes both ways on this front. Actual heartwarming stuff for once on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on this Friday here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. At Guy Benson Show is our Twitter feed and our Instagram feed. So that's all very easy to remember, I think. Check us out for the free podcast every day on demand, totally free of charge. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow in the red again, down 40 points today, ending the week at 29,886. The Dow is down about 5% this week. So it's been a rough ride. And we will have much more on the economy coming up. About one hour from now, when we welcome Larry Kudlow to the show, Governor Chris Christie also coming up later this hour. But first, 
we get to Janice Dean, senior meteorologist for Fox, also a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Make Your Own Sunshine, inspiring stories of people who find light in dark times. Janice, always good to talk to you, and welcome back. Guy, it's so nice to talk to you, too, and almost happy summertime. I would say it feels like summer. It feels too much like summer, I would say. In a lot of places around the country, these heat waves are just remarkable and are disrupting people's lives. There are travel problems for a lot of folks. What can you tell us about this heat wave? Just to to keep your meteorologist hat on for a moment before we move on to other floral hats and horse racing and that sort of thing, let's talk about the weather. This really is unreal what a lot of people are experiencing right now across the country you're correct it's not just quote unquote summertime heat uh it's oppressive heat and it's affecting you know hundreds of millions of people right now uh for a a big swath of the country really stretching from the southwest through the plain states the Mid-South, the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic region. And it's not just a couple of days of heat. You know, sometimes you'll get a heat wave. It lasts three or four days, and then it breaks, and a cold front comes through, and it's back to more seasonal temperatures. These temperatures are lasting for a matter of weeks, and that's when it gets really dangerous. And when you've got temperatures in the upper 90s, and with the humidity, it feels even worse than that. It feels over 100 degrees. And if you're out for a duration of time, you can have serious health problems. And that's why I always say, or I try to after every weather report, you know, make sure you're taking care of your kids. They can be affected by the heat uh, more than adults and then the elderly, of course, and your pets. Bring your pets inside. Don't forget about your pets. Yeah, lots of hydration, drink water for everyone involved. I also look at these temperatures and the strain that they're going to put on a lot of houses and businesses, and I start to think about electrical grids and power grids, right? I mean, that at least starts to creep into the conversation a little bit. It has to. Of course, because people are running their air conditioners 24-7. Uh, and it, it creates a, a big problem uh, for for areas that can't sustain that for days and weeks. Uh, so it gets to be a concern. And I read a story on foxweather.com about cattle, like hundreds of cattle dying uh, out mm. in the plain states. So, you know, it's not just affecting us. It's affecting farmers and crops. And, Animals. yes, it has a ripple effect. Yep. That's very sad to hear about cows dying that way. I mean, I say that as someone who eats burgers and steaks all the time, but you don't want them to die of heat exhaustion or something, you know, out out in the field. That's sad to hear. Well, I hope people can stay cool and hydrated with the lights on and the AC still working because it can be not just an inconvenience or an unpleasantness. It can be, as you point out, Janice, dangerous. On a lighter note, on this Friday, a couple things here. You are going to be covering... Is it this weekend or this upcoming week, the dog show, the Westminster dog show? So I, I saw this, and my first thought was I could have sworn this dog show was around the holidays. Am I wrong? Did I just miss that? No, they I, they had part of it uh, during the holidays as well. I think they split it up last year. Uh, this is the second year they're having it in the summertime. Typically, it's at Madison Square Garden 
in around, around February, so right after the holidays uh, in the wintertime, and I've covered it many years for Fox and Friends. But last year, because of the pandemic, uh, they wanted to hold it outside, so they had a place in Terrytown where they've held the dog show before many, many years ago at the Lynnhurst Estates. Beautiful property out in Terrytown, and they held it last year, and it was so great that they're doing it again this year, and it is over uh, a period of days. So it starts this weekend on Saturday, and it ends on Wednesday. So there's different sporting events each day. But you know what? The dogs love being outside, Guy. I think it's like a natural to have it outside. And, you know, I always say to the organizers, you know, you want me to come here because I have to bring the good weather, right? <laughs> and so this year, thankfully, you know, we were talking about the heat, but the Northeast has been protected uh, by, you know, from that oppressive heat that is south of us. So we've been really fortunate. The weather is going to be actually pretty good this weekend and into next week. So what do you typically see at the Westminster Dog Show? Because <laughs> I have seen clips of it from time to time. I'm sometimes interested. My dog is a Bedlington Terrier, Roy. And so I sometimes will want to look up who was the best in breed, in his breed. Uh, and then, of course, I watched the movie Best in Show, which is hilarious. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, the yeah. comedy, uh, from years ago, but it's just, it's excellent. What's it like being there? Because you're just like such an infectiously happy person. You would make covering virtually anything probably a positive experience, but a bunch of dogs with their dog people <laughs> who could be a little eccentric maybe at that level uh just walk us through the process you got to be careful guy because i went earlier this week because they were introducing um some new categories uh within the breeds i don't know if i can tell you about them I, i'm gonna wait Ooh. how about you have oh. me on next week there's two new categories you, you were about to make news you have to you can't tease us like that janice <laughs> You know, maybe I can. So it's the Moody and the Russian toy. Uh, so the Moody, I think, is like a shepherd, a shepherding dog. And the Russian toy is almost like a little chihuahua, very, very cute dog. Um, and those are, you know, two of the new breeds that they're looking at. Hopefully I can say that on air. Well, But uh, I, I met them this week. I, you know, I did The dog's out of the bag, Janice. <laughs> yes, very nice. Very well done, my friend. Yeah, I have to. I love it. You know, listen, we all love our dogs, right? They got us through a pandemic. A lot of people actually adopted dogs during the pandemic. Uh, and to see these dogs and their owners, by the way, and many of their owners love Fox and Friends. I mean, when I went for the preview this week, I had owners coming up and saying, we love Fox and Friends. We love Fox News Channel. So um, they're our viewers. They're our listeners. And we love them. There is just something so special about, you know, these dogs. And Best in Show is one of the greatest movies of all time. And people will tell me it's very similar to real life. You know, there are a lot of those, you know, um, quirky Eccentric. type of personalities yep. uh, that come out. And, you know, just to see the grooming products that these dogs have to have, it really, I mean, it puts my grooming products to shame, I have to tell you. Oh, well, I mean, because this is like a professional thing almost for these folks. And then the scene that I always remember from that movie is when that one couple, sort of like the progressive-seeming chic couple, had this vicious <laughs> argument because the dog's chew toy has gone missing, the busy bee. <laughs> yes! And yes! this is not the busy bee. And they had this huge blow-up over it. It's just such a – that's Catherine O'Hara and that whole yep. crew – uh, it's if you haven't seen it, you should go see the movie. And apparently, according to Janice, 
it is at least somewhat realistic. What kind of dog oh, do you have, Janice? So. I don't have a dog guy, but I will tell you. Oh, I just thought when you said are... we all love our dogs, I, I thought that was like it was a royal we. Well, listen, exactly. I love dogs, any type of dog. Uh, I, I adore them. We have a lot of dogs in the neighborhood. But my kids now are at the age 13 and 11 where they are more responsible and they keep asking Sean and I, my husband, Sean, for a dog. And this might be the year. So I actually, you I know, recommend it. Told, can I just can I, I just tell you, Janice, I just want to tell I you want one. From my well, and your mom, mom often decides, right? And so I think the decision yeah. will be yours. And as someone who begged for a dog my entire life as a child, and my parents finally got the dog when I was going away oh. to college, um, I loved that dog, LB. I had a little bit of time with him and, and loved coming home to him, but I feel like maybe your kids are younger, it might, might be time. It seems right to me, okay. Well, that's I'm just, going to be that's looking my counsel. this weekend. Yes, and uh, you know Ooh. I have a few dogs that I you know favor, but I'm open to any and all suggestions. So if your listeners have dogs that they love that they think might fit my family, please let me know. Well, what kind of criteria are you looking for here? Um, you know I I don't like a huge dog. I mean, listen, I love don't don't get me wrong. If we had a bigger place, I would love any kind of dog, but it has to be kind of small to medium size, obviously friendly, um, you know, trainable, because I get up at 3 a.m., right? So, I, you know, hopefully the dog is still sleeping with my kids and my husband when I go to work. Um, but I think this is it. This is the year. This is the year of the dog and our family becoming Do you one. need like a non-shedding, hypoallergenic situation, or is that optional? No, that's a good point because my son is like allergic to certain animals. We cannot have cats anywhere in the house, and I have a, a slight allergy to dogs. But I'm willing to, you know, to to go and get the, you know, the allergy shots to get to to have a dog be part of our family. You know, Janice, I'm just I'm hearing all the things that you're telling me, and not to be weird about it, but I do think that you should at least think about a Bedlington Terrier, which is what we have. Can Roy you send is me a picture of him. Abs- oh my gosh, he is the cutest. I will get this to you asap as soon as the segment's over. <laughs> it's like you don't have to ask me twice. Can I see a photo of your dog? I'm like, how much time do you have? <laughs> like, would you have a capacity on your phone for receiving photos of dogs? Bring because it. Because he was so last night. My husband's out of town. He's on business, so he was in bed with me, and I was reading. And I'm reading the new Brad Thor book, which is coming out in a few weeks, and Brad's going to be on the show next week. So I'm really uh, just focused on the book, and I'm totally just, you know, taken by the drama because he, he writes thrillers. And all of a sudden, yeah. Roy, I start hearing his, his tail slapping the bed. And I put my book down, I just look around, and his tail is going crazy and he's wagging his tail, I realize, in his sleep. He is sleeping, and he is having some wonderful dream, and his tail is wagging and hitting the bed. And I tried to get my phone to film it, but, of course, as soon as I got the phone up and ready to go, it stopped. It was just about the cutest thing I've ever seen, so I just wanted to share that with you. And I will be sending photographs along to you momentarily. Quickly, though, Janice, speaking of other animals... You do also, for Fox & Friends, cover these horse races a lot. And yes. 
I love all of your social photos of yourself, often involving very elaborate hats, which is, of course, a tradition, especially at the Kentucky Derby and some of these high-end events, Triple Crown events in particular. Do you have a hat budget for these things? (laughs) That is an excellent question and one that no one has really asked me. But, you know, something that is important because I have my own milliner. No way. Moore, yes, but here's the deal. And she's been designing hats for me for many years. She's a New York designer, and that's her job. She loves doing it. She used to be on Broadway, and she got into this job of making beautiful, fabulous hats, and she loves it so much. It's, every hat is a piece of artwork. So over the years, I've gotten to know her. So when these big, fancy events come up, she will design the hat to match the dress. Uh, and the good news is wow. I get it for free, but I give them back to her to sell. So I don't get to keep the hats. Otherwise, I'd have to have another oh, house for all my hats. Well, that's very <laughs> exciting. I mean, it's it's almost like going to a sporting goods store and buying a game-worn jersey from a superstar. This is a game-worn <laughs> hat by Janice <gasps> Dean out in the field for Fox and Friends. You're out there with the ponies. Do you ever bet on the races when you're there, or do you stay away from that? Oh, no, I do. Listen, I, I don't go crazy, um, but I have my favorites. You know, Rich Strike was, was one of the greatest uh, long-shot winning horses of all time at the Kentucky Derby uh, and, and raced uh, at the most recent Belmont Stakes. He didn't win, but, you know, I, I wanted to bet on the long shot. Uh, you, know, you know who did win on the long shot? Did we talk about this? Shannon Bream. Shannon Bream. Yes, I remember that. 80 to so, 1. 80 I mean, to 1. She's having a great year, Shannon Bream. We have to say with her book and everything, uh, she's also one of the happy people that we love chatting with all the time who work at Fox. And one of her colleagues in the happiness department, the sunniness department, uh, department rather, Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here, best-selling author. She's got her own personal milliner, all sorts of stuff happening. Janice, dog picks incoming. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Interesting story in the Washington Post with Mitt Romney calling out the Democrats. And we've been mentioning this now for weeks, probably months, with the White House and congressional Democrats claiming poverty when it comes to COVID spending. Oh, we have no money left for bare essentials on COVID. Therapeutics, testing, vaccines, the cupboard is bare. And I've said over and over again how insulting that is, given the fact that they spent $6 trillion of our dollars, taxpayer money and borrowed money, in this whole emergency spending thing, then the $2 trillion extra package, which was hugely wasteful and inflationary. Then they come back and say, oh, please give us more, because the core COVID stuff, we just, we have no money anymore. It made no sense. There were some negotiations underway on a bipartisan basis to try to make something like this work. But now Romney is effectively pulling the plug. Headline from the Post is Congressional COVID funding deal appears dead after GOP criticism. Republican senators accuse White House of, quote, false information. Biden officials say GOP keeps finding new objections to COVID funding. They've done six trillion dollars of COVID funding. Four trillion of which was bipartisan. Mitt Romney said at a health hearing in committee that the Biden administration officials had provided, quote, 
patently false information about their ability to meet the nation's COVID needs without additional funding. And so the deal that was being worked on appeared all but dead Thursday after Senate Republicans accused the White House of being dishonest about the nation's pandemic funding needs. Mitt Romney, who brought the Senate close to a bipartisan deal back in March, said the Biden administration had provided, as I said, patently false info on vaccines, treatments and supplies and the funding for those things. He cited a newly announced White House plan to repurpose some existing funds to cover the country's most pressing vaccine and treatment needs. Quote, Washington operates on a relationship of trust between the respective parties, Romney said. I hope that there's an appreciation that for the administration to say they could not purchase these things, then after several months, divert some funds for that purpose and purchase them is unacceptable and makes our ability to work together very much shaken to the core, end quote. Senator Richard Burr saying similar things. So they lied. They lied about it. They said they couldn't do it. Now they've done it. And Romney, who was working in good faith, was like, okay, this is bad faith on your side. I'm out. Hell of a job, Democrats. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Friday on the Guy Benson Show, we are glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day, including bonus Benson each weekend. Joining us now is Chris Christie, the 55th governor of the state of New Jersey, a Republican. He was there for eight years in that position. He's author of the book Republican Rescue. He's at GovChristie on Twitter. And, Governor, it's great to have you back. Good to be back, Guy. Thank you. I'd like to start with a couple questions surrounding the current political climate in the country and the climate of divisiveness, polarization, and even violence. We saw this week, after a long delay, a weeks-long delay, the House Democrats finally allowed a vote on this bill to provide more security for the members of the Supreme Court and their families, following the doxing of their home addresses, a bunch of protests outside their homes. These are the conservative justices that this happened to. And then, of course, the assassination plot against Justice Kavanaugh that was about over and done with in the news cycle in the span of half a day. It wasn't really all that interesting to the media. But because of that, the Dems got shamed into passing this thing, and it is now law. There were 27 House Democrats who voted against the bill, including the entire delegation, Democratic delegation from New Jersey. Their explanation, including the more quote-unquote moderate ones, was that they wanted all federal judges to get more protection because of that horrible thing that happened to the New Jersey judge and her son getting murdered at their family home. I understand pushing for that and making her you know, a cause. I don't understand not getting that addition to the bill and then voting against it anyway, given what's at stake. What do you make of all of that? Well, I, you look, I think obviously the, the, the murder of Judge Salas' son, I, I know Judge Salas, I know her son, was an awful tragedy and one that needs to be dealt with. But the bottom line is that you can't, in my view, let the perfect get in the way of the good. And this is part of the problem with everything that goes on down in Washington now. You know, if it isn't exactly what I want, I'm voting no. I mean, that's not the way legislation works. 
at least not my, you know, not my experience. And nobody ever gets exactly what they want. And I think this was just showtime um, by these members of Congress, um, you know, on a very local issue without taking into regard the very real danger that all nine justices of the Supreme Court, you know, face on a regular basis in the climate that we're in right now. But most particularly, it was easy for them to do it because the most recent threat was to Justice Kavanaugh, who none of them support. And somehow um, that makes it okay um, to be able to play political games with this. Meanwhile, sort of relatedly, Governor, there's a New York Times story about the, quote, Democrats' risky bet that the party's engaged in right now, where they are trying to boost, the Democrats are, meddling in Republican primaries to boost and support more extreme or radical or conspiratorial candidates for office, hoping that they will get nominated by the Republicans and then would be easier to beat in the fall in November. And this includes the number one Democratic PAC putting money in against a Republican who voted for Trump's impeachment the second time, using that against him, attacking, this is a member from California, attacking him from the right as not a true conservative for voting in favor of impeachment, which is all what the Democrats say was the right thing to do, country over party, this is the most important thing, we shouldn't make this a partisan issue, and then cynically they turn right around and they weaponize the vote to meddle in a primary to hopefully in their mind get someone that they would have an easier time beating in November. I mean, that seems to me to be some of the most cynical politics I have ever seen, number one. Number two, they're playing with fire because in a red wave year, you never know who's actually going to get elected. And if they're boosting people that they believe to be crazy, it's sort of like be careful what you wish for. And number three If you're telling us that January 6th and all this stuff is the most important thing in the country and democracy is at stake and there's an existential threat to our system of government, and then you turn around and play these types of games, it, I feel like, gives a permission slip to an awful lot of people to not take you seriously at all because it seems like you aren't serious about the things that you claim are so extremely threatening to the republic. Well, look, I agree with all three of the points you made, and I would, I would just say this, that in the end, um, you, when you are engaging in issues like this, it shows you are devoid of anything that you think is attractive to the American people right now in terms of ideas to deal with the problems that our country has right now, like inflation, like $6 gas, like rampant crime in the streets. You know, those are the things that the American public care about the most. Republicans are putting ideas forward on how to deal with that. Democrats' are, strategy is twofold. From the White House, it's to blame everything on Vladimir Putin and the NRA. That's their strategy. Mm-hmm. And it, apparently with the members in Congress, it is to try to get us easier opponents from their perspective to beat. Now, we saw this go on in Pennsylvania in, in the Doug Mastriano race for governor. Um, that they, you know, Shapiro, the attorney general and Democratic candidate, was spending money in the Republican primary uh, to support Mastriano, who he believes will be an easier candidate to beat. And I think, one, be careful what you wish for, as you said, um, in a red wave year. And secondly, I think it shows people that these folks who yell and scream about election integrity all the time are playing these kind of games in other people's primaries. I don't know what the integrity is there. Yeah, and look, just to reiterate the point, I think the most important point, 
you cannot tell us that January 6th was a watershed event that was deeply destructive to the country and that democracy might be hanging by a thread. And you need Republicans and Democrats to come together to make sure nothing like that ever happens again. And then in the next breath, green light money to go into a Republican primary to mess with it to try to empower, at least in the primary process, the very types of people that you say are a grave, grave threat to the country and to democracy itself. You can't do both of those things and be taken seriously. That is what they are trying to do. It is what they are actively doing in a number of these races around the country. And I think it is beyond a horrible look for them. Speaking of which, Speaker Pelosi, we talked about this earlier today, also yesterday, Governor, she was asked a pretty straightforward question about this rash of violence, political violence, domestic terrorism directed at pro-life organizations and crisis pregnancy centers that try to help women with resources and counseling not have abortions. You have these insane, dangerous terrorists who are radically pro-abortion, who have been firebombing and engaged in arson, vandalism and other threats against these organizations they put out a letter this week planning more vowing to do more saying that they derive joy from these attacks putting these organizations on notice you either shut down your operations or we're coming after you and pelosi was asked about this basically just to condemn domestic terrorism and political violence and when she was asked about it she spoke for about a minute straight did not even offer a hint of condemnation of these firebombings and threats. She instead just went absolutely to the wall on abortion, very vigorously defending abortion while also calling herself very Catholic, and then concluded her statement by saying she would not be answering any more questions on the subject. I don't know how it is possible for a major leader in this country to get away with an answer like that. It should be easy and universal, especially with all the January 6th stuff happening right now and the Democrats injecting that into the bloodstream as much as possible, for her to not even attempt a hearted two-second condemnation of violence is, I would call it shocking. I'm not sure if it is shocking because obviously she feels like she can get away with it and it almost feels like she's supportive of the firebombing. What other conclusion are we supposed to draw if she can't even put together a perfunctory six-word you know chiding of these people at least she didn't even do that no it's not shocking guy because look for someone like nancy pelosi from the most liberal part of this country abortion on demand is a litmus test and it is something that you have to be all in for um, no matter what the ramifications are violence against uh, crisis pregnancy centers Violence against places that are trying to help women who have made the choice that they want to keep their child and have the child be born. Um, this, this is reprehensible. But look, you know, I, I heard you say that, you know, um, how can she get away with it? She's not going to get away with a guy because she and her party are going to be roundly escorted out of power in November. And part of the reason for it is their overplay on this abortion issue. They, there's no doubt in my mind that it was liberals who leaked this opinion the draft opinion, 
in an attempt to try to create political pressure that would somehow change it. We don't know if that tactic is going to be effective or not until the opinion comes out. And they wanted to create mayhem on this issue in a country where they knew that their policy prescriptions were leading to utter failure and misery for the American people who are now paying $460 a month more for the very same things they paid for before Joe Biden became president. I mean, that's what they're trying to distract from. You talk about cynical politics. We're talking about that with the last question. This is incredibly cynical politics. It puts people's lives at risk. But for them, the preservation of their power is worth doing it. And that's why Nancy Pelosi is a relic of the past. And she will be escorted to the past um, this November out of power as speaker. Meanwhile, President Biden is out there sounding a little bit cranky, although he's at the beach. He left for the beach today, which is nice. And I don't begrudge people their beach time. I know that might be a sensitive issue for you as well in a leadership position. But, I mean, at some point over and over and over again with so many people hurting, for him to just sort of say, like, all right, long weekend time, good luck with everything. And in a number of statements this week, Governor, we heard from him a number of misstatements, assertions, He's talking about how inflation is worse everywhere else except for here, which we know is not true, just empirically false. He also said that he's sick and tired of hearing about people, quote, lying about all the reckless spending that he's been doing. He said, we're changing people's lives. He bellowed that at a union event. We're changing people's lives. I think that's true, Governor, not just the way I think he means it. Oh, it sure as hell is true. Um, when when people have to pay $100 to fill their, their, their uh, car with gas, when people can't get out of the supermarket with a few items for under $100, when people are worried to have themselves, their children, walk on the streets of most of our major cities in this country because we have liberal uh, prosecutors who have disemboweled the police um, and their ability to be able to fight crime on the streets – um, and then when the police do arrest people, um, they don't pros- prosecute them. Um, it's outrageous, guy. And, and you know, this is, this is why Biden can't talk about any of that. So, you know, all he wants to talk about is Vladimir Putin and how he's caused all the problems in this country and, and that he, he didn't engage in reckless spending. Well, he did. That $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, um, obviously, what it's rescued is it's rescued the Carter-era economy and returned it from the 1970s uh, to the 2020s by Joe Biden, whose favorite president is Jimmy Carter. So we shouldn't be surprised. This is ridiculous stuff. He looks like a fool out there yelling at the AFL-CIO event and yelling that he's changing people's lives and not talking about reckless spending. Look, you know, we should, we should have a national holiday this year for Joe Manchin because inflation would be at 15% if it wasn't for the fact that he was willing to stand up and say no to another 4 or $5 trillion of reckless spending by the Biden administration. And yeah. Chuck Schumer still hasn't given up on that guy. Um, so this is, this is a desperate man who is in over his head and doesn't know a way out. So all he does is thrash around to try to distract people from what they see very obviously every day around their kitchen tables, on the streets of their cities, in the classrooms where their children are not being taught the things they should be taught and the way they should be taught, and all of that is a product of this woke culture and liberalism that Joe Biden has decided to deliver to the American people, even though he promised that he's going to bring the country together and bring some sense of moderation. Um, that's hardly been the case, and now he's being caught with his, cookie, his hand in the cookie jar.
Yeah, I do want to hold off on the national holiday for Joe Manchin until I'm convinced that he won't actually vote for some other giant package that they're secretly negotiating right now. We'll ask Larry Kudlow about that coming up. Quickly, though, Governor, on Biden and looking ahead, I know there's all this speculation and buzz right now about whether he will run for president again. The White House, of course, insisting that he will. They have to. What do you think? Do you think he's going to take another shot at this thing in 24? You know what? We have to take a break. So let's take it very quickly. You can ponder that. We'll get Governor Christie's answer as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Right before the break, I asked him, do you think President Biden is going to run for re-election? All right, what do you think? I think that the likelihood of that is somewhere around 5%. I don't think he's going to have the energy or the capacity to run for president, personally. And I don't think that he'll have the political support necessary to try to lead uh, his party. And so I think both politically and personally, it will be an impossibility. And let's face it, Guy, we're talking theoretically right now about what's going to happen in November. But if the Republicans do, as I believe, retake the House and Senate and add three to five governorships in this country to get over 30 governorships in the country, the Democrats will be calling for the end of the Biden era themselves. We've seen stories about this already, but can you imagine on election night when all those people are losing their jobs um, inside the Democratic Party? They're going to want a scalp, and the scalp they're going to want is Joe Biden's. So I don't think he's going to have the political wherewithal to do it. And quite frankly, personally, when you watch him operate every day, the, the, the avalanche of misspeaking that he does that has real-life effect yeah. on our economy and on our foreign relations, it's not just that the guy is, you know, um, someone who can't get a good sentence out. But when the president of the United States can't, it makes us not look like we're strong around the world. And, in, and at home, it sends mixed signals to everybody about what, the, what direction the country's headed in. So yeah. I don't think that sounds like a recipe for reelection. The Democrats may be looking for a new boss sometime soon. And speaking of, see what I did here? Let's talk about Bruce Springsteen to close things out here on the interview. The boss has been showing up at other people's concerts at the Meadowlands. We saw him with Coldplay, what, last week, I believe it was, and then last night Paul McCartney brought him out on stage. They sang Glory Days together, which is awesome. Here's a snippet of what that sounded like. Cut 29. Just a couple of legends up there. And then Bon Jovi came out and sang happy birthday to McCartney, who's turning 80. Pretty cool stuff. We have just a few seconds left, Governor. I know Springsteen is saying he's waiting to go back on tour till next year. But it kind of feels like he's itching to get out there because he's doing it a lot. He's totally itching. And what that means for people who love the Jersey Shore like I do is start going to the Stone Pony in Asbury Park a lot because he's going to start showing up and playing with anybody who's on stage there. He is itching to get out there and play. And when you hear that kind of stuff, you know it's the summertime in New Jersey, guy. The boss is out there singing, and we are about to have a a very, very fun summer here in Jersey. Oh, you love to see it. Chris Christie, 55th governor of the state of New Jersey, author of Republican Rescue, at GovChristie, his Twitter handle. Governor, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to it, guy. Thank you for having me on.
You bet. Stepping aside, coming right back, it's the Guy Benson Show. Final hour is straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the Friday Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you are all here. An hour left of the weekend. Thanks for spending it with us. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free every day on demand at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That includes Bonus Benson on the weekends. No charge. And the hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I will be having some tonight, no doubt. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They're expanding 40 states now by popular demand. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Joining us is Larry Kudlow, host of Fox Business Network's Kudlow at 4 p.m. daily. He's the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And Larry, as always, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Guy. Terrific. I would like to start with these claims by President Biden, he's making a lot of them that are just verifiably false. And he repeats them, I guess, for low-information voters, hoping that they'll hear a soundbite and be convinced, although the polling does not suggest that it's working. Yet another poll out today has him in the 30s overall. The Fox News poll has him in the 20s on the economy, just deep, deep underwater. But one of the things that he says is that the U.S., is actually in better shape on inflation than the rest of the world, that the rest of the world has it worse. It's not true, as our colleague Peter Ducey pointed out to the White House press secretary this week. Here's how that exchange sounded in cut one. He says that inflation is worse everywhere but here. That's not true. The U.S. has worse inflation than Germany, France, Japan, Canada, India, Italy, Saudi Arabia. Well, so why is he saying that? I think what we are saying is that... Uh, when you talk about inflation, it is a global thing. And it is not just about the United States. This is something that everyone is feeling because of coming out of once in, once in a lifetime pandemic, because of the war that Russia has started in Ukraine. So, Larry, that's not really an answer to the question. He's saying that we're in better shape on inflation than the rest of the world. And they've said we're better than the rest of the G7, also untrue. Yet, they keep repeating the lie and then sort of dodging with that word cloud when called out on it. What do you make of all that? Well, I think it's not true. Uh, there's some good work done on this by the San Francisco Fed and also by former Obama economist Jason Furman. Uh, actually, a good story in the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, uh, Europe is suffering from high inflation. That is quite true because of high oil prices. But, 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 but the best way to look at this is to look at the core inflation rate. Take out food and energy, and our core inflation rate is twice what Europe's is and twice what uh, the OECD big uh, countries are. It's about the numbers, Guy. We're running at about 6.5%, and they're running at about 3.5%, so it's not quite twice. And so that's telling. And Jason Furman wrote that we have applied – more, much more, almost twice as much 
fiscal stimulus, i.e. spending, federal spending, than these other countries. We were much uh, more aggressive and much more stimulative, and that's what's caused all this core inflation. And the final point that Furman pointed out, uh, our wage rates are roughly uh, twice what the rest of the OECD is. We're about 6% plus. They're about 3%. So it's just not true. The moral of the story is we applied more federal spending and borrowing, and our central bank was also uh, easier, more money supply growth. And so we're running a faster underlying core inflation rate. And it's silly for them to make the case they're making. I mean, it's just plain silly, and it's been uh, debunked by so many people now. It's almost boring. It's just people look at this and they just say, oh, stop, come on. You're in trouble here. You caused this. These are self-inflicted wounds. Live up to it. That's the problem, guys. They won't live up to it. President Biden said in an interview with the Associated Press, he finally did an interview with a reporter. He hadn't done that since early February, an interview that aired on Super Bowl Sunday. That was the last time he had done one. In that interview with the AP, he made a bunch of claims, a bunch of promises. I think he has very low credibility on a number of these fronts. One of the things that he said was it was, quote, bizarre for people to blame the inflation problem on the $2 trillion rescue plan that even Democratic economists, some of them are in fact confirming, acknowledging, was a big contributing factor to the inflation problem. But the president calls it bizarre. He wants to say this is Putin and this is supply chain stuff from the pandemic, period. No one else's fault. Trillions of dollars in spending had nothing to do with it. Well, it's a pretty tough case to make. And again, you know, you were citing those polls. And that's important. People see through these lies and falsehood. They see through it. And they know from their own experience, uh, gasoline prices and energy prices started going up almost the day he won and certainly by uh, the day he was inaugurated in 2021. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's tiresome, isn't it? I mean, he keeps saying this stuff. And people just shrug their shoulders, and they don't believe it. They don't have good explanations. You know, then they – look, they dodged the whole issue, right, for a while. Then they said, well, it's just going to be temporary, transitory. And then they went on an apology tour. You know, my favorite one is the Janet Yellen hostage video (laughs) with CNN. I mean, it just – this stuff is silly, and people aren't buying it. And here's the amazing thing. While Biden is talking about – blaming Putin and COVID and whatnot. They're trying to lobby now for another spending package, okay? Yes. They're supposedly in some kind of negotiations with Joe Manchin. I hope he doesn't fold on this. He's been so great up to now. And they also, Guy, part of this package would be a very significant tax increase on successful earners and on companies, businesses at home and also in their operations abroad, which would do great damage to the economy. And again, on the supply side of the economy, it would be ruinous. I mean, they're not going to produce it. Here's another one, guy. This uh, business about an excess profits tax on oil companies, I mean, come on. If you tax production more, you're going to get less production of oil and gas at a time when we desperately need more production right. to ease prices. I mean, it just doesn't make any bloody sense. None of it does. And it's all contradictory. It's this big sort of whirlwind, a messy whirlwind of competing 
sound bites and ideological talking points from a very desperate group of people, to your point on the polling, just to put a finer point on it, the Fox News poll that just came out has Biden underwater at 29 approve, 67 percent disapprove on the economy, worse on inflation, 23, 71. The American people were asked in the poll, do you blame Putin for this more or do you blame Biden's policies more? A majority says Biden's policies. So it's just not working. You mentioned this more spending, this additional round of spending that they're at least negotiating reportedly behind closed doors. I'll remind everyone that they wanted to pour $5 trillion of gasoline onto this fire and just explode inflation. And they came within one or two votes in the Senate of getting it. While they're denying that the $2 trillion really had any impact, imagine that being $7 trillion in total. You were on the campaign, just the, the war path, beating the drum on your show every day, save America, kill the bill. That seemed to have worked on Build Back Better. But here's kind of like the, I don't know, step-cousin bill that might be coming back like a zombie. What do you think? Is this real? Do you think they actually might get a bunch of new spending done in an election year like this, thanks to Joe Manchin? I just don't know, Guy. I don't know. I mean, they've been negotiating this package. I'm just looking right now at a report from our friend Dan Clifton, who's a terrific Wall Street economist, and he's a policy watcher. I mean, they want, look, um, $300 billion hike in the corporate minimum tax, a $300 billion hike in money corporations made overseas. Uh, they want a surtax on wealthy people of $180 billion. They want an investment tax of $250 billion. Uh, this stuff is crazy. I mean, I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm saying, really? Really? Spending side looks like, let me just add this up, tax credits for renewables, $500 billion. Enhanced uh, Obamacare subsidies, $220 billion, and enhanced Medicaid, uh, $180 billion. So in round numbers, that's $900 billion. Let me see, $500, That's right. So it's about $900 billion in spending. Wow. And the tax hike is going to be well over, well over a trillion. I, yeah, $1.6 trillion, okay? So they want $900 billion in more spending, and they want $1.6 trillion in higher taxes. So the higher taxes will damage the economy and reduce or eliminate production. And I'm not just talking about energy. This is stuff is across the board. And the spending increases of $900 billion will, of course, add to inflationary pressures from higher demand. We don't need it. It's a dumb package. Uh, I hope they kill it, but I, I just can't tell you because it's all been uh, behind closed doors. My friend Joe Manchin negotiating with uh, my unfriend Chuck Schumer. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't know what to tell you, buddy. I just hope it doesn't go through because it's exactly the wrong policy. And look, he speaks on both sides of his mouth, right? He's always telling us how the deficits come down. Of course, that's because of emergency spending has run off. Right. Uh, and now he's – but it, all this stuff would simply increase the deficit. And as you said, earlier the BBB would have been about $5 trillion. Yeah, so he, and he wants credit. Under, I guess he wants credit for the deficit reduction from the huge emergency pandemic spending going away. He wanted to basically enshrine it with Build Back Better with this crazy amount of spending. Almost got it but didn't. He's like, well, look at the credit I get for that on the deficit now while also proposing huge additions to deficits and debt over a 10-year window. It is incoherent. It's like they're inventing 
terrible ideas. Did you see the story, Larry, that they were debating in the White House sending rebate cards on gas to the American people? And they ended up not doing it because, number one, some people obviously were very worried about inflation. This would only make the problem worse. Number two, they didn't have the materials to actually produce the cards themselves because of shortages. I mean, you have to laugh to avoid crying, Larry. It's a comedy of errors. Well, I, I like your word incoherent, and I would just add to that harmful, harmful. Mm-hmm. We don't need any of this. You know, what you should be doing here is, first of all, cutting taxes, make the Trump tax cuts permanent, deregulate across the board energy and all businesses, and you should be freezing domestic spending. That's the kind of pro-growth policies that would be necessary. Otherwise, Guy, what you're left with here is the Federal Reserve, which was way behind the curve, but now the Fed is getting very, very aggressive, and they'll be raising their target rate uh, in each of the next several meetings, uh, probably by 75 basis points. That's big numbers. And they'll be cutting back. They'll be taking cash out of the economy by letting their bond portfolio run off. So if the Fed is draining money and raising rates, that is recessionary. Fiscal policy should be pro-growth. Higher taxes and spending would be uh, the, uh, you know, the anti-growth. Of that. Yeah, anti-growth. And, and that's... That's what they're about. Quickly, Larry, before we let you go, we've talked about oil, energy, gas prices a little bit. What do you think of the line from the administration where they're telling these oil companies, we demand that you produce more and increase your capacity right now, do it as patriots, all of your profits here are a problem, but also, yes, we are very committed to putting you out of business in a matter of a few years, but do it. (laughs) It's phenomenal. By the way, um, the oil companies don't pay their fair share. ExxonMobil paid $40 billion in taxes last year. $40 billion. I just love this. And the only other point I'd say analytically, this administration with its rabid, zealous environmental restrictions has actually been closing refineries, closing refineries. We're short uh, at least a million barrels of gasoline right now and maybe more. So that adds to higher prices. They're closing refineries. All right. Yep. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Well, the White House press secretary urged them to, quote, do the capacity, which is spoken like a true expert, I think. Uh, and we'll see how they respond. I know Exxon has already hit back with a pretty strong statement saying, how about a change in policy on your end, uh, which I think is what many, many Americans are thinking, and rightly so. Larry Kudlow host of Cudlow on FBN every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Larry, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Guy. Take care. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. You see this story about Elon Musk, who just has a lot of attention headed his way. He's good at garnering it. Earlier this week, teasing that he is looking at voting Republican in 2022 and 2024. He's interested in Ron DeSantis for president. He voted for Myra Flores down in that district that flipped at the border because he's a Texan now. Well, apparently there was a group of employees at SpaceX, his company, 
that gathered together and published one of these open letters. And the allegation is that they were going around pressuring people, bullying people into signing it, where they were calling on the company to rebuke and distance itself from Musk. They were complaining about his public statements, his tweets, allegations of inappropriate behavior. We know that there was the sexual harassment allegation against him that I think some people were curious about the timing of that. But these SpaceX staffers, in the open letter, called his public statements, quote, a frequent source of distraction and embarrassment and called on top leadership to rein him in. And then in response to that, a number of these signatories were fired because evidently there was a non-disparagement clause somewhere in the employment agreement. These are at-will employees. And the thing is, if you're going to come out and criticize the company, and you're going to do so in a big, splashy way to embarrass the leadership, calling them embarrassing, going after and calling out by name the founder and leader of the company. I know that in this woke moment, employees, especially younger ones, feel like they can just do that with impunity. We are very righteous, and so we're going to speak truth to power and call people out. And that's often not really how it actually works. You can't go around trashing your employer and your bosses like this and expect nothing to happen to you. I know that's the lesson some people have learned. Some people have indulged this, various companies and leaders. Evidently not the case at SpaceX and with Elon Musk. So it's like, okay, you're out, which is kind of the adult boss thing to do, frankly. Now, look, if you have such a problem with someone at the top of your company that you cannot countenance it anymore you cannot in good faith continue working at a place like that you are welcome to do what is called a resignation letter you can write a resignation letter in protest to your heart's content and go forth with your clean conscience and i guess elon musk in a certain way turned this open letter into a resignation letter for the people involved who again were reportedly pressuring others into adding their names to it well that was a mistake And Elon Musk clearly showing on a number of fronts that he isn't messing around. Even though he likes to troll and likes to mix it up and likes to be provocative, at some point he is not messing around. So some people bleeped around and found out. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on a Friday here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we caught up with our friend and colleague Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. We always have a fun chat with Janice, especially on the sunnier topics, which is what we did today. Here's part of that conversation. These heat waves are just remarkable and are disrupting people's lives. There are travel problems for a lot of folks. What can you tell us about this heat wave? Just to to keep your meteorologist hat on for a moment before we move on to other floral hats and horse racing and that sort of thing. Let's talk about the weather. This really is unreal what a lot of people are experiencing right now across the country. You're correct. It's not just quote unquote summertime heat. Uh, it's oppressive heat and it's affecting 
you know, hundreds of millions of people right now uh, for a, a big swath of the country, really stretching from the southwest through the Plain States, the Mid-South, the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic region. And it's not just a couple of days of heat. You know, sometimes you'll get a heat wave that lasts three or four days, and then it breaks and a cold front comes through, and it's back to more seasonal temperatures. These temperatures are lasting for a matter of weeks, and that's when it gets really dangerous. And when you've got temperatures in the upper 90s, and with the humidity, it feels even worse than that. It feels over 100 degrees. And if you're out for a duration of time, you can have serious health problems. And that's why I always say, or I try to after every weather report, you know, make sure you're taking care of your kids. They can be affected by the heat uh, more than adults. And then the elderly, of course, and your pets. Bring your pets inside. Don't forget about your pets. Yeah, lots of hydration, drink water for everyone involved. I also look at these temperatures and the strain that they're going to put on a lot of houses and businesses, and I start to think about electrical grids and power grids, right? I mean, that at least starts to creep into the conversation a little bit. It has to. Of course, because people are running their air conditioners 24-7, and it it creates a, a big problem uh, for for areas that can't sustain that for days and weeks. Uh, so it gets to be a concern. And I read a story on foxweather.com about cattle, like hundreds of cattle dying uh, out mm. in the Plain States. So, you know, it's not just affecting us, it's affecting farmers and crops. And Animals. yes, it has a ripple effect. Yep. That's very sad to hear about cows dying that way i mean i say that as someone who eats burgers and steaks all the time but you don't want them to die of heat exhaustion or something you know out out in the field that's sad to hear well i hope people can stay cool and hydrated with the lights on and the ac still working because it can be not just an inconvenience or an unpleasantness it can be as you point out janice dangerous on a lighter note on this friday a couple things here you're going to be covering is it this weekend or this upcoming week, the dog show, the Westminster dog show? So I, I saw this, and my first thought was I could have sworn this dog show was around the holidays. Am I wrong? Did I just miss that? No, they, I, they had part of it uh, during the holidays as well. I think they split it up last year. Uh, this is the second year they're having it in the summertime. Typically, it's at Madison Square Garden in around, around February, so right after the holidays uh, in the wintertime. And I've covered it many years for Fox and Friends. But last year, because of the pandemic, uh, they wanted to hold it outside. So they had a place in Terrytown where they've held the dog show before many, many years ago at the Lyndhurst Estates. Beautiful property out in Terrytown. And they held it last year. And it was so great that they're doing it again this year. And it is over uh, a period of days. So it starts this weekend on Saturday and it ends on Wednesday. So there's different sporting events each day. But you know what? The dogs love being outside, Guy. I think it's like a natural to have it outside. And, you know, I always say to the organizers, you know, you want me to come here because I have to bring the good weather, right? (laughs) And so this year, thankfully, you know, we were talking about the heat, but the Northeast has been protected uh, by, you know, from that oppressive heat that is south of us. My full interview with Janice Dean is online at GuyBensonShow.com, part of our free podcast, every day on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine's husband's 40th birthday party, now in jeopardy. It's supposed to be tomorrow. What happened? We'll get that plus an intriguing invitation for yours truly. All of that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday, coasting into the weekend together on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast, including bonus Benson on the weekends. If you're listening on the broadcast, not the podcast, you are hearing as this bumper song a new obsession. Yeah, crank it there, Dan, for just a second. Oh, so good and also so embarrassing. I was on a Peloton ride yesterday, and Cody Rigsby played this song by Carly Rae Jepsen that was an absolute banger called Cut to the Feeling. And I'm loving it on the bike. I'm dancing on the bike. I favorited the song on the screen. I said, I love this new Carly Rae Jepsen song. And I get off the bike to immediately find it on Sonos, only to discover that the song is like six or seven years old. How is this not a huge hit? I had not heard it anywhere. You can look it up. Cut to the feeling, Carly Rae Jepsen. I put it on Twitter. I put it on Instagram. Like proselytizing for this song. It is just pure pop goodness. And the responses were a mix of, holy cow, I'd never heard this song before, and where have you been? We all loved this song six years ago. I'd never heard it. It was not a huge national hit. Apparently it was a big gay hit. I just missed the anthem memo, I guess, on that. Doesn't mean that I can't love it now, and I do. So that is entering the rotation on our bumper music. One of the good reasons to listen live, by the way. I'm just saying. We'll have more on music coming up here in the home stretch, but first, producer Christine, you've talked about how your husband, Bobby, is turning 40. You had this big plan for him, going to a casino and a fancy restaurant, and friends were coming, and the big dinner, and all of that. And you are now concerned that, what, the party may not happen? Why? So my husband is stuck in Dallas as we speak. Uh, he had a work trip this week. And as we've heard, especially from Janice, the weather is horrible around the country and especially in the South. We had bad weather actually yesterday. Uh, he was supposed to come home last night. Flight got canceled. There was no flights that he could get on this morning. Now he's hoping to get on a flight tonight. We were supposed to leave tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. to start his birthday weekend festivities, plus Father's Day. Yeah. So what happens if he can't get on a flight tonight? Um, I don't know. Any suggestions? Because I really – I'm sitting here. Uh, as Roy told me, you cannot get upset. For this is your therapist, your, right? Your, your therapist yeah. told you. Okay. Well, one of them. Yes. Of them. There's, a whole, there's a whole team, myself included. Cannot get upset. Okay. And I also cannot get mad at Bobby, which is like my go-to. Why would you be mad at him? Um, that's a great question. I've already went through this with Roy, okay? But uh, it's just misplaced anger, as we talked about. I think I would just be upset because I've been planning and 
I think you'd have every right to be upset, but not at him. That is completely out of his control. Well, I don't think I can call the airline and yell at them. I don't think they're going to care. Yeah, but but then why yell at him? Why make things worse with the person that you're married to? When and it's not even well, the airline's fault. If it's the weather, it's, I mean, some stuff cannot be controlled. Even if it's very frustrating. Very. Could he, frustrating. Could he rent so, a car and just drive? I don't. I don't think he would want to do that. That is and a very so, long drive. Yeah. From, have you done it from Dallas to New York? I have not. I have not. That seems brutal. Um, yeah, I don't think so. So we're just gonna we're gonna pray right now. His flight for tonight is on time, so fingers crossed. Um, if not, maybe there's an early morning flight. I don't know. I, I really am trying to just think positive. I mean, I that would be like plan. I would say close to twenty four hours of a drive. Exactly. So that. Oh also, yeah, no, he's not going to do that. That doesn't. Mm-mm. Oh gosh. Well, fingers crossed. Have you prepaid for a bunch of stuff? Uh, I actually, it's so funny because when I called the restaurant to pre-order things and prepay, they suggested not to. So they do have my credit card. I think like a cake has been paid for, mm. some balloons, you know, just like little things. I don't know. I don't know. But I just feel bad because people have paid for rooms. Right. They've planned their whole weekend around this for the big 4-0 and the special dinner and – yeah, there's, there's not a, you just have to pray that he gets on a flight, any flight, back to New York, New Jersey. And that's the thing. Tell him to be looking not just Newark, but LaGuardia, JFK, Philly, Long Island, like anywhere within a couple hours' drive of your house. Just get closer. Even uh, I was saying to him, DC. look at Logan at Boston because Boston. his family's from Boston. Right, They're and, and I believe way. that the big parties in Connecticut, right? So look at Hartford, look at Boston, look at Providence, Rhode Island. I mean, yeah. that would be my advice. Cast a <sighs> wide net and get out of Texas or, and get closer. Or I do have one seat open. Would you, you say I don't invite you to things? I, I don't think that I could be a good stand-in for your husband at his birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> just just a thought. Okay, um, meanwhile, yeah, we're, we're going to need your update on this and what happens on Monday. We will wait for that with bated breath. I also want to get your advice on something, Christine. God help me. Oh, gosh. Okay. Right, ready for ready. this? Mm-hmm. All right, so I got a note from a listener who works in the space of promotions and works with a number of different pretty high-profile brands and organizations and helps promote products and brands and events. And this person gave me a slate of dates to potentially go see a band that's going to be on tour. And he said, you know, look, I can make this happen. I can get VIP tickets, so there'll be really great seats, plus I think you can probably meet the band backstage afterwards. Would you be interested? And the thing is, I looked at the dates, and they're just really hard for me to make work with my schedule. There's a few actually next week in Florida when I will be in Florida, but it doesn't quite work. And then the most convenient locations for me normally are all when I'm going to be up in Massachusetts on vacation 
So that also won't really work. The only one that might work is next weekend, and I'd have to get back from my business trip to Florida, do the show, sort of have one night to regroup, and then drive a significant length, like four hours each direction, to North Carolina and back for a Saturday night show. I think I can probably spend the night down there. I'd probably bring Adam with me. I think I can get at least two tickets, he said. But spend the night after the concert, then drive back the next day, the Sunday, from North Carolina. I might have to shift around a little bit of TV plans for that Sunday, but I think that's doable. I'm just trying to figure out, is all of that disruption, moving the TV schedule, maybe getting a hotel, driving eight hours, is it worth it for this whole thing? And I have a direction that I'm leaning Adam definitely has a point of view on this, but I'm just wondering if you might have a thought on whether I should do it. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it depends on the band. I assume we're not naming names here, correct? Well, I I think we're going to. Dan, hit it. Oh, my God, we're back again. Christine, should I drive eight hours round trip to meet the Backstreet Boys? (laughs) What should I wear? Oh, my God, we're going to meet them. By the way, by the way, when you say, oh, my God, don't even ask me this question, you sounded like the press secretary when Don Lemon asked her about whether Biden is going to be available to run for president in 2024. Like, very similar energy right there. But I'm like, how could I say no to this? You cannot. I'm actually, like... It's almost like it's happening to me, which I, I have now a week to make sure I am involved of some sort, how I can be. You have to do it. You have to. It's a no. Oh, my God. You're going to meet them? I wish I could have seen you. I wish I could have <gasps> seen your reaction when we played that music for you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You don't understand. Like, they were probably <laughs> hands down my favorite, favorite of all the boy bands. That that second album was hands down the best, the best album. See, oh. I am several levels down on the fandom scale from you, but like you know, if you're an American of a certain age, like you know, at least five or six of their songs, if not every word, a lot of the words. And I remember very distinctly being roughly 13 to 15 years old and pretending that I didn't like their music, even though, come on, very, very catchy. So I think it would be very fun. I also heard, this is where we will not be naming names, but I heard that at least one of them is a conservative and a Fox fan. What? Yeah, so that would be probably part of the connection here. So I, actually, I, am, I think I know who it is. Well, let's let's just keep that to ourselves for now, okay. and I can get permission or not. I just have to figure out if I'm doing this and whether I can logistically make it work. But I think I'm leaning yes. Adam is a definite. If you can do it, let's go for it. And your reaction, I feel like you might actually be legitimately angry with me if I didn't go. I We would have, yeah, it would be great. 
It would not be great. I mean, first of all, you get to bring Adam. It's a great overnight weekend away. You've been traveling so much. Right. It's I'm not sure just me. It's not if it were just me by myself, it would be like, I don't know, showing me the meaning of being <laughs> lonely. And I didn't want that to happen. But it's gonna be Adam and me and we'll see. I might be able to get my hands on a few more tickets not to get expectations lifted too high here, okay? But it sounds like you are voting very strongly in one direction. Dan, you're a music guy. Are you cringing at this, or do you think this is cool? No, this is awesome. I actually saw the Backstreet Boys in their heyday, and I went and thoroughly enjoyed it. So I would be very, very jealous if you got to go and meet them. Okay. I mean, it sounds like i got to do this then. All right. More details on that. We will bring you Backstreet Boys updates here on the program in the coming days. But I guess... I'm I'm leaning. We should probably go for this thing. We shall see. Well, good luck, Christine, with the big 4-0 for Bobby this weekend. I hope the weather finally cooperates. Fingers crossed there. We will be back here on Monday with a brand new edition of the Guy Benson Show. We've got the free bonus Benson podcast, of course, over the weekend, as always. But in the meantime, have a great weekend. I know I will because I want it that way. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.